All right, good morning. Open up to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And uh, while you're turning there, or, you know, once you've turned there, just write down somewhere, like take notes on your phone or something like that, text the person next to you, but uh, answer the question, uh, what makes a good preacher? What makes a good preacher? That's, that's kind of your, your homework. Make sure you write it down. You know, it's got to be objective. Like send it to someone so that you can't change your answer later after the sermon. Be like, see, I got it all right. You know, I got all 27 points. Um, there's not going to be 27 points, but you get the idea. Um, <laughs> uh, let's see. What was I going to say? Uh, we are also, by the way, on Mondays for the next four Mondays, starting tomorrow, we're going to have our Teach the Word Bible study that's going to take place at my house, um, 7 p.m. Yeah, and then we have a total of eight of our church members uh, who have prepared Bible studies, uh, each of them being approximately 10 minutes of worth of content. Uh, two will go on each of the Mondays. So for the next four Mondays, there'll be two, 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 two. Uh, and so anyone who wants to come is welcome to come, and uh, we'll, you know, we'll be constructively evaluating and helping them to refine their, their lesson to kind of keep you know, in their inventory for later, right? But uh, if you want to be part of that, come on over and uh, and let me know if you're going to come. Though I'll, I'll put out a thing on Facebook, and that way, you know, I can get an RSVP so we can have enough seating or whatever. I'll provide water. Okay. Um, and then af- after this, uh, I, I literally wrote stuff on my hand so I would remember <laughs> like what to say. Uh, af- after this, after this, I'm going to uh, take off like right after service. It's not because like I'm not interested in meeting any of you, but my son has a uh, his fourth piano competition today, and so I have to get home and, and try to be there for that. And so, you know, um, I'm excited. I'm sure he's nervous, all that kind of stuff, right? All right, Second Timothy chapter 4. We should be there. We're, we're good to go. Let's say a word of prayer, and then we'll jump in. Father, we love you. What a privilege it is for us to gather together as your people, to have uh, the, the, the varying kinds of giftedness among the many different members. Uh, we get to celebrate, Lord, together with all the different ways that, uh, that people are able to do so. And so thank you so much that we get uh, the, all these different kinds of opportunities and combinations. And we pray, Lord, that we would take hold of this and, uh, and to really understand that you work through any of your people uh, any way that you want. And, uh, and so we we place our confidence not in ourselves, but in you. Bless this time, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Today we're going to start a four-week series called Preach the Word, which is kind of a new step for us. The idea of the series is to platform godly men from our congregation who, who are not overseers um, to preach the word for our church, to have them come up here and to proclaim to you the truth written down in Scripture. There are several purposes behind this, okay? First is uh, that it's, it's right for us to train up preachers in our church. I don't think that's a job that we leave to seminaries to do. I think that's a job for the church to do. If, uh, if the Holy Spirit has gifted someone with the ability to, uh, to effectively proclaim the word of God, then we ought to platform that and to train that up. And so that's our responsibility. Second, I think it allows for multiple voices to be heard, uh, they're like-minded voices, which means that we all uh, stand on the same solid ground of the gospel, and yet there's variation in style and appeal and all that kind of stuff, which hopefully means that we can reach different kinds of people. Third, 
Uh, it'll demonstrate the unity of our congregation since the same gospel will be presented despite changing out the different preachers. Fourth, it allows uh, me a certain uh, extra amount of time to take breaks to focus on other material, like to develop stuff uh, that I wouldn't otherwise have time to do, or even to, to kind of plot out and, and figure out upcoming series, things like that. Fifth, though, uh, most importantly, and this is the, the motivation that originally uh, inspired the series, is to, to simply decentralize the church's leadership from any single face, namely mine, uh, from any single name. Uh, we, we've seen a lot of churches, if you've been around the, uh, in church for a long time, if you've been a Christian for a while, uh, you, you'll see that there are a lot of churches that are built on famous pastors or uh, built on pastors that have been there for a very, very long time. Uh, and then when those pastors, for some reason, are gone, uh, if, if for some reason they move to a different church or, or if something happens, if they retire, if they pass away, something like that, uh, whenever that happens, um, you start to see those churches who identified their, uh, their whole congregation under that single person's name or that person's face, that church starts to struggle. And while I intend to uphold my commitment to leading this church from the pulpit, uh, I, I also very honestly recognize that my time is a lot more limited than many of us realize, than, than any of us uh, ever really think about. Nobody thinks about that. How long are you going to be doing what you're doing? Uh, and I think it would break my heart if this church were unprepared for a different face to come up uh, to the pulpit when that day comes. And I think that that's something that we have to, to train ourselves for, to be receptive to the Word of God from anyone who comes up here and rightly preaches uh, we need to train that in our hearts for years before, you know, before we become experts at it. So establishing a plurality of leadership is healthy, and having that reflected at the church's rotation of preachers is wise. So today I'm going to kind of awkwardly start off this, this series of Preach the Word um, with, with, you know, in this introductory sermon but the series itself will be carried by not me, right, other, other people. And so some of you know who the upcoming three preachers will be. If you don't, as a fun game, you're more than welcome to guess. You know, write it down, send it to someone, whatever, right? And uh, don't cheat. If you already know, don't pretend you don't, right? God knows. You know, uh, but in terms of uh, 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 how we're doing to how we're staying consistent to that, we're also trying to decentralize the uh, the face of the other part of the service. You know, there there are two parts of service. Um, there's the there's the part where you sit and listen to the word, and there's also the part where you sing out. And usually, there's a front person to lead that, um, and he or she is is kind of the the face of the the worship leading part. And so we're going to change out the worship leader for all four of these weeks as well. Um, and uh, the point is not to give a whole bunch of credit, to, you know, and, uh, and make someone into a celebrity or anything like that. But because the first week is the hardest, I do want to just give a small shout out to Jacob Hahn, who did an excellent job. Can he stand up? Let's all just clap for him, you know? There he, he, there he is in the back. Look how humble he is, you know? He's not even standing. He's just covering his face, right? What a man of God. All right, no. I think he, uh, it, he did a really, really great job, and I'm, I'm very, very encouraged by him, um, and I'm trying to embarrass him because I love him so much. All right. Um, for today, I am going to give a slightly, slightly shorter sermon on the subject of preaching, 
Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I do want to handle that, uh, that question. How do you know a preacher is good? How do you know a preacher is good? Now, you know, someone might write down, like, the preacher's funny. But I'm sure, like, if you're, if you're actually a serious Christian, that's not going to be your real answer, you know? But someone might think, oh, okay, the, the preacher needs to be funny or, or, or be able to engage someone's attention. Uh, or you might say a sermon is good if I walked away and I learned something. In fact, you might see the, the negative on that. When someone walks away from a sermon and uh, someone says, what did you think of the sermon? You go, ah, I already knew all that stuff. And because you didn't learn something new, you think that wasn't very good. Someone might say that, uh, you know, the sermon is good if it, uh, if it really convicts you. You know, and by convicts you, sometimes that becomes synonymous with it gets an emotional reaction out of you, moves you. Someone might say that uh, a good sermon is simply one that's easy to follow, right? It doesn't have to be emotional, and uh, it doesn't have to be funny. Uh, and even if it's, if it's not new information that, that, to learn, it's easy to follow. Someone else might say, like, it's got to it's gotta demonstrate a certain modicum of scholarship, you know, the Greek, the Hebrew, a lot of attention to the context and all this stuff. Other people might be looking for book quotes, you know, just uh, like this person's well-read, really done a lot of understanding, not just of the text, but of human nature and of pop culture and this kind of stuff. And so, you know, they expect some kind of integration between the ancient word and the present time. How do you know a sermon is good? How do you know a preacher is good? I'll tell you this, there's kind of a, um, an understanding among preachers where we say to one another that your first hundred sermons are garbage. And by comparison to what comes after that, that's somewhat true, right? Your first hundred sermons, most of the time you're really just imitating some preacher that you've heard before. You know, you're copy-pasting uh, guys that you've heard, sound bites that you've heard, and then you try to carry the same conviction and tone and, and have the same, you know, that appeal. And then you're, you know, it's clumsy because you don't really know the whole Bible that well. You're just starting off in your preaching career, and so depending on how long you've been versed in it, uh, a lot of times you'll say stuff that years later you'll be like, that's not even true. <laughs> Why did I say that? Uh, and then as the years go by, you'll, you'll hopefully, you know, iron that stuff out. Much of the stuff that you preach in the beginning of your, uh, your preaching career is, is going to be largely uninformed. You don't, maybe you don't have your eschatology all figured out, you know, stuff on the end times, the book of Revelation, the book of Ezekiel, the book of Zechariah. You, know, you haven't touched a bunch of books, right? And if, if a preacher's worth the salt, he'll eventually get to them. But, uh, but otherwise, you know, you, ju you just kind of have these blind spots. And so when you're preaching certain passages, uh, you don't realize that it's talking about this, this promise that God is talking about the end for his people, how do you know a sermon's good? How do you know a preacher's good? I mean, just because he, that preacher is within his first hundred sermons doesn't mean the preacher's bad. He's just, I mean, no one starts off a master of anything, right? You don't start off a master at a musical instrument. You don't start off a master at a sport. You, you have a certain amount of giftedness and natural talent, but, but that's not the same thing. An experience has to hammer you into a, a more formidable weapon. Now, for our church as a whole, this series is a way for you, or this sermon, today's sermon anyway, is uh, a way for you to know what you should expect from a biblical preacher. What makes a good preacher? 
and how you can pray for one. If you've got a preacher, if you're from a different church and you're listening to a different preacher, how to pray for your preacher. In terms of how I'm going to phrase these things, though, the way that I'm going to say what I'm going to say, I will be speaking toward the three guys that are going to come up here in the next three weeks. So I'm going to be speaking to them, and it's as if you guys are spectators to that, eavesdropping in. This is really for the whole church to know what makes a good preacher, but I'm phrasing it in such a way toward them so that they have their charge. They know what the Lord requires of them based on the scriptures from which we'll be, uh, we'll be studying so that when they come up here, they are prepared. All right, so uh, I'm going to be talking to these three guys uh, for the coming weeks. Everyone can learn what a good preacher is. And then, you know, at the same time, be gracious, right? They're within their first hundred sermons. They're still learning. And so don't, don't, walk, uh, don't walk away with like the, did I like it or not? Don't do that. Ask yourself, did this preacher do what was required of him? And that's what we got to cover. Okay. Now, in my career as a pastor, you know, I've been a pastor, now I'm in my 20th year. Uh, I've seen uh, a few movements kind of come and go because that's uh, what's been happening in, in, the, in the church at large. Um, you've seen the charismatic movement flare up, and you, you've seen the emergent church, the seeker-sensitive church, the business model church, the young, restless, and reformed, uh, the new apostolic reformation, the deconstructionist faith deconstructing your faith movement that's kind of going on uh, right now, all of this stuff, you know, and, uh, and it's all this, this big attempt at modernizing Christianity. Each movement introduces the church um, into a philosophy of pragmatism to impress the world, try to modernize, try to make the, the gospel a little bit more contemporary, a little bit more with the times, because it feels a little dusty and ancient and old-fashioned and out-of-date, Modernizing Christianity isn't a theological agenda. It's a sociological one. And it's making Christianity more palatable to the world. That's, that's kind of the, the intent behind it. I don't think that that's, uh, that's a bad intention, but I think it's not a good priority. It's like when, uh, when Christians, especially young Christians, you know, when you're in college or around that time, when you're, you know, when you're young like that, uh, many Christians think that they should use vulgar language or go to parties and, and watch the same things that everyone else watches on, on TV, no matter how uh, filled with depravity it is. Have no standards on this kind of stuff because, uh, you know, if you act a little bit more like everybody else, you can camouflage in and you're more relatable. And now they'll want to listen to you when you talk about the gospel. Right? Because if, if, if you were a prude and you didn't watch the, the stuff that they watched, and if you don't listen to the music they listen to, and if you don't talk the way they talk, and you don't drink what they drink, then they think that you're some kind of a, a, you know, a moral elitist or something like that, and they find you unapproachable, they, they're afraid you're judging them, and you think that, oh, by, you know, if I actually live set apart from them, then they won't be affected by my evangelism. Does that sound like the Holy Spirit to you? Or does that sound like a serpent? You think we can uh, camouflage and then infiltrate the world? Like by using deception, we could win people. 
or by compromising godliness, people will be convicted to be godly. The church has gone through so many movements of trying to be a little bit more like the world in some way, to be a little bit more appealing. How do any of these movements compare with the actual biblical model of church? How does that compare? How do we get a thorough answer from the, from the Bible on what church is supposed to be? I think that uh, the very easy answer to that is just to look at two books of the Bible. They are written from an apostle to a pastor. His name is Timothy. And there are two letters written to him. They're just called 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. That's just the first and second letters uh, to Timothy. And I think that that gives for us the philosophy of ministry and the model for ministry that we, we ought to pursue. Uh, the Apostle Paul had personally men- mentored and, uh, and discipled this young pastor, Timothy, uh, who was facing severe trials while he was pastoring the church in Ephesus. Paul writes in these two letters, First and Second Timothy, to strengthen him and to teach him how to lead the church. That's what these two letters are, how to lead the church. And so if that's what God said through Paul to Pastor Timothy, I think that's instructive for us today. In these letters, you have the most complete ministry philosophy given anywhere in the New Testament for the church. Now, let's try to boil this down. In 1 Timothy, Paul instructs Timothy that he must rebuke those teaching false doctrine, and he must wage the good warfare of sound doctrine, and he must hold faith with a good conscience. He says all that in chapter 1. Then Paul says that Timothy must pray for the lost and teach men to pray and to be free from anger or quarreling or hypocrisy, and he must call the women to dress respectfully and modestly and submit to church leadership and be holy examples to their children. He says all that in chapter 2. And uh, Timothy must appoint church leadership based on character and faith, not on giftedness and popularity. He talks about all that in chapter 3. Timothy must confront false spiritual practices based on false doctrine, train people in theology, avoid irreverent and silly myths, train people in godliness even more than physical fitness, place hope only on God, boldly teach this to everyone despite his youth, be an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity, stay committed to preaching and teaching scripture only, watch himself carefully against temptation in order to protect himself and his congregation. He says all that in chapter 4. Timothy must humbly rebuke older people and gently rebuke younger people, give special care for those in need, such as widows, give double honor to leaders that rule well, especially those who preach and teach the word, publicly rebuke and remove unrepentant leaders, avoid partiality, select new leaders slowly, carefully, and wisely, and keep himself in good health so he can continue to serve. He says all that in chapter 5. Timothy must teach bond servants to honor their masters, even if their masters are unbelievers, and he must be content when all is well and when all is wrong. He must pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness, fight all the enemies of the church, command the rich to be generous and rich in good works, and to guard the gospel, avoid anything that sounds like knowledge but steers away from that, the gospel, the faith. He says all that in chapter 6. That's the letter to First Timothy. In Second Timothy, Paul wants Timothy to keep growing as a pastor, 
immune to fear, filled with God's power and love and and self-control. Timothy must not be ashamed about Jesus or of the faith, but follow the sound words from Paul, guarding the gospel in church. He says all that in chapter 1. Timothy must be strengthened by Jesus' grace, by the, by the gospel, and share in suffering. Remember how uh, we will live and reign with Jesus and remind the church not to quarrel about earthly things. Present himself to God as an approved worker who rightly handles the word of truth, avoids irreverent talk and that leads to ungodliness, and he should flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, and uh, patiently endure evil, uh, correct opponents with gentleness so that they might repent. He says a lot in chapter 2. Timothy must expect difficulty uh, for people to be lovers of self and money and pride and pleasure with the appearance of godliness, but none of its power. Timothy must continue holding to the scriptures that God breathed out for teaching and reproof and correction and training and righteousness to completely equip every Christian for every good work. He says all that in chapter 3. And then finally, Timothy must be ready to preach the word. Timothy must be ready to preach the word in season and out of season to preach it and teach it by reproving, rebuking, and exhorting with patience, sober-minded, enduring suffering, evangelizing to truly fulfill ministry. He says that in chapter 4. That is the nature of ministry. That is the job description for every elder or overseer or pastor. They all mean the same thing. That's how church is to be led. The different fads and trends and movements that the church has seen over the centuries, and even just in the recent decades, if we just want to look in our own lifetimes, are symptoms of worldly compromise. But these letters confront all of that. These letters keep a church healthy, grounded on the gospel honoring to Jesus. Maybe the word healthy is more important than, than we think about, you know, because it's not, was the sermon good? Maybe we shouldn't ask that. Did you like the sermon? Maybe we should ask, was it a healthy sermon? Was it healthy? Now, all those commands that you get in First and Second Timothy, I think you can kind of boil them down to, to five things, Okay. So if you're taking notes, I know I lost you with all the book stuff, right? So let's, let's just break it down to five things. I'll put them up on the board to make it that easy, right? First is be faithful in preaching sound doctrine. Be faithful in preaching sound doctrine. You can just take a picture if you don't want to write. Second is be bold in confronting sin and false doctrine. Be bold in confronting sin and false doctrine. Third is be an example of godliness. Like, it's not just about what you say, it's about how you live, who you really are. Fourth is be diligent and work hard, right? Do not ride off the the wave of your natural abilities. Be diligent and work hard, no matter how good you naturally are. Fifth is be willing to suffer difficulty and hardship and persecution. There is no promise of success. There's no promise of prosperity There's only the the promise that persecution might come your way. And when it does, be ready. 
When you look at the different fads and trends and movements of the church, none of them follow all five of these things. Most ignore all five. They look at management theory and social sciences, modern business, marketing techniques, hyper-masculinity, theological superiority, etc. More than ever, we need faithful men to accurately, passionately, and courageously preach the word. And as history continues on, that statement, I believe, will need to be renewed again and again and again. The passage that we're looking at today, then, is from 2 Timothy. It is, uh, it is uh, a paragraph of five verses, just the first five verses of 2 Timothy chapter 4. And I believe in this paragraph is maybe the most haunting charge for every preacher. 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Amen. There was never room in the Apostle Paul's philosophy of ministry to quote-unquote, give people what they want. He didn't conduct a survey to find out and then try to preach to their heart's desires or their, their, their felt needs or whatever. He didn't move to a congregational vote on what should be preached next. He never instructed Timothy to go study the demographic data of a region to know how to plant a church. He said, preach the word faithfully, patiently, rebuking worldliness and the spirit of the age head on. Paul never told Timothy to measure his success on how many people respond. Factors like church population or the church's income, the church's influence, he mentions none of that. He didn't set Timothy up to be respected or esteemed. None of those external worldly definitions of success ever mattered to Paul. He mentally and spiritually prepared Timothy to be hated, to be opposed, 
to be in constant conflict with people within the church trying to battle and undermine godly leadership. Jeremiah 5, verse 30. Jeremiah says, An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. Well, what's that? Verse 31. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so. But what will you do when the end comes? There's bad preaching. There's bad leadership, but my people love it. It's not what God is saying, but wow, these people are impressive. And the congregation loves it. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Who am I trying to please? People or God? If I'm trying to please people, I'm just not a servant of Christ. If there's anything to learn from passages like these, it's that the popular vote is not the measurement of success. People loving the church doesn't mean that it's a good church. Just because you like it doesn't mean it's good. Popularity doesn't make it right. A choice needs to be made. Who do we please? People or God? The emphasis of the Bible has always been commitment to truth, not success. Protecting against error, not against failure. Which one is the larger threat in your mind? I hope we don't fail, or I hope we don't get it wrong. There's a difference. There was no motive to try to make a lot of people come. There was only warning that persecution might follow. Faithfulness, godliness, spiritual commitment, real confession, real repentance, real fruit. Is that happening at your church? Is that happening because you have the right leadership? Our passage, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, becomes our model for what to talk about and what to expect from every preacher. Whether at this church or you end up going somewhere else, what should you expect from your preacher? I'll give it to you in, in, in nine little points. And I'm going to be speaking to each of the preachers. First, preacher... Remember your calling. Remember your calling. See, judgment is coming. And you're called to preach the truth because souls depend on it. It's not, it's not preached because you get paid. It's not preached because someone asked you. It's not preached because someone's got to on Sundays. 
you have to preach because souls depend on it. And you have to preach well because God holds you accountable. That's your calling. Even if you're not the weekly preacher, if you only have one week at the pulpit, you are called to preach that week in the sight of God. And God will judge you by what he thinks, not what they think. He'll judge you by the standards he's given you in Scripture. Just a couple reminders, preachers, is James chapter 3, verse 1. It says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Romans 14, 12 says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they, the leaders, the preachers, they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account you must stand before the Lord at some point and withstand his scrutiny. He will judge you and your work. Anyone who preaches and teaches will be judged with greater strictness. By whom? By God or by people? Both. Of course people will be more scrutinizing of anyone who stands at the pulpit. You know that. There's something interesting about the, the, the preaching, the, the whole gig. See, because if you're, if you're bad at your job, let's say you're a programmer and you're bad at programming, people go, oh, maybe you're not good at programming. You can, you can find a different job. It's fine. Let's go have lunch. Not a big deal. I mean, let's say, let's say you're a nurse and you're bad at nursing. People will be like, that's okay. You can just do something else now. Let's go get lunch. If you're a teacher and you're bad at teaching, be like, maybe you shouldn't teach. That's okay. Let's go get lunch. And then, if you're a preacher and you're bad at preaching, if they don't like your sermon, they don't say anything to you, they go outside the room after church and they go, I don't like that guy. He's a bad human being. He's an awful person. Bad things should happen to this person. I don't like him. If they don't like you as a preacher, they don't like you as a human being. They, they, they don't tell you that. They tell everyone else that. And if, if you happen to be, you know, uh, if you happen to be appreciated by your congregation, then they, they won't say it to the congregation in, like, bold terms. Maybe they'll just be kind of crafty about how they say it. And they'll say it to other people. But when, when people don't like the preacher, they think that person is just a trash human being. And it's, it's not because the preacher came up and said something awful. It's because of what was written and they tried to like deliver it. They're just, you know, the preacher is not a chef. He does not cook up the new spiritual lesson. He, he's a waiter. The lesson's here. He just needs to like take it from the kitchen to the person at the table without dropping it and messing it up. Right? That's it. So... I mean, he's just, he's the mailman. If, it's like if you receive bad mail and you're like, that mailman is trash, I hate this guy, right? Look at this letter, it's a bill, it's another bill. This guy always brings me bills. They don't like the preacher, they don't like, they don't like him, they think he's a human being, they hate you, they think you're appalling. 
And then on top of that, God's watching your work, <laughs> right? I mean, if, if someone asked, like, did God like your sermon? Now you're really in the hot seat. Did God like your sermon? Because he clearly has opinions about this job. In fact, I mean, just compare how many times he talks about how to preach the word versus he talks about how much money to make. How much is, is he interested in most people's career goals? On getting promoted, on, on making more money, on having rank and, and property and achievements, acclaim. How, how many verses talk about that? Like, oh, you should do that. Verses, how many verses talk about preach the word carefully, accurately, humbly? God has way more opinions about that. Preacher, remember your calling. Second, preacher, preach the word. That's the name of the sermon. That's the series. Preach the word. Right? That's the one and only weapon that you have that's effective for the salvation of souls and glorifying of God. Preach the word, not something else. The tasks itself sounds very simple. Oh, just preach the word. Just read the Bible passages and talk about it a little bit. It sounds very simple, but you do have to consider the inherent difficulties that are built into this thing and are, that are inescapable. The message of the Bible is oftentimes difficult. Right? In any passage, you have a, a mountain of opinions of what this could mean. So many people uh, have written books on what they think different passages mean and stuff. So you have to know your hermeneutics, your, uh, you know, the principles of interpretation of how to like read something and intelligently understand it, right? You have to know your hermeneutics, understanding the syntax and the semantics, taking it literally unless there's clear uh, reason to take it as something figurative, symbolic, allegorical, etc. Then you have to study to, to bridge that language gap and oh, yeah, and then there's the culture gap, and then there's the thousands of years time gap, and then there's the geography gap. And you have to fight against your own instinctive desires. You have to filter out your own cultural, political, psychological bias because does society raise you to think a certain way and to have opinions about certain issues? Of course. Does media put into your minds a certain way to think and regard something? Of course. And you have to sit there and try to clear out your own bias so that you're presenting what the word says, not what your society has taught you to say. You have to sift through the ones that exercise bad hermeneutics. You have to deeply consider the one with good hermeneutics. Then you have to take the ones with good hermeneutics and try to compare that with the rest of scripture to see if it's consistent and whether or not that is the the most reasonable way to, to conclude. The message of the Bible is oftentimes difficult. Not only that, but the message of the Bible is oftentimes offensive, right? If you're going to call someone to repent, you have to first say that they are guilty of sin, and that tends to upset people. First Peter 2 calls Jesus a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, a rock of offense because the message of Jesus offends people. Just about every sermon ought to start with something that the listeners are guilty of. Guilty of thinking or feeling or doing. And your job is to call them out. Your job is to say, 
This is what we might think by our flesh, but you're wrong. Here's what God says. This is what we should trust. You're going to offend people. Like if I preach a sermon on uh, what makes a good preacher, I don't think anyone gets offended like, oh, that's not what I thought was a good preacher. I hate that guy. He's a trash human being, right? Nobody walks away on, on maybe that topic. But get to something a little bit closer to home. You know, the stuff that, that gets into political stuff or stuff that people have done in their pasts, and you're talking about that here, or stuff that they're doing right now, and you're talking about that right here in front of everyone, and you get different reactions. You're going to offend people. They're going to they're gonna say you're wrong. Why are you wrong? Well, the, you know, they don't like what they hear, and they might not even give a, a, a Bible reason. They might e- not even say God disagrees. They would just say, I don't like it. They don't like it. It's different from what they, uh, it's different from what they feel. Or maybe it's different from what they thought. It's certainly different from what they want. Maybe it's different from what they were taught. The message of the Bible is oftentimes offensive. Not only that, but the message of the Bible is, it seems like foolishness to the world anyway. Society thinks it sounds backward, old-fashioned, and wrong by their standards. And then, especially if you're young in the faith, if you're kind of a new Christian, you haven't been taught everything and stuff, and so sometimes you hear a sermon and you're like, what is this? I don't, I don't like this. this. It sounds stupid. It sounds old-fashioned. It sounds bigoted. It sounds kind of biased. It sounds antiquated. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says, the natural person, meaning like an unbeliever or a believer who's just acting like his old self, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, foolishness. They're foolishness to him. So now you've got this problem, because you're going to preach the Bible. It's difficult. You've got to sit there and study it and mine it and figure out what it's trying to say and try to get rid of the stuff that you might want to say. But you have the, the stuff that the Bible's saying, and then you find out that after you preach it, some people are offended by it, they think what you said is offensive, and then other people just think that it sounds stupid. It sounds foolish. Either way, it's not impressive. So you've got to square away with how it sounds to an unbeliever. You have to know that it, sounds, that it sounds either offensive or foolish, or both, to an unbeliever or to an immature or untrained Christian. And then on top of that, sometimes you're just bad at it. You might, you might just be a bad preacher, okay? You might be a bad preacher. Um, yeah. Maybe, maybe you just have, like, bad habits. You just, like, you, just like, like, you keep saying, like, 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 um, like, 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 you keep, like, like, saying, like. Maybe that's distracting. Maybe. Maybe you have a stutter. Maybe you, you have a weak voice. Maybe your voice cracks all the time. Maybe you're unclear. Maybe you're inexperienced. Maybe you crack a joke and people don't know that you're joking. And like some of them who really took you seriously are offended. But if you actually believe what you're going to preach, then hopefully you get up and stand with Paul in, in Romans 1 and you say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of salvation for everyone who believes. 
We also stand with Paul in 2 Timothy 3. He said, all scripture is breathed out by God. It'll equip the Christian for every good work. And then you just remember Moses and you go, Moses was bad at speaking. He had a stutter. But God used him mightily. Preacher, preach the word. It doesn't stand or fall on your ability. It stands or falls on whether or not God is true to what he said. And he is. Third, preacher, be faithful in season and out of season. Be faithful in season and out of season. What does it mean to be faithful? What what does it mean to be in season? What does it mean to be out of season? It doesn't matter. You have to be ready in both. So be faithful in season and out of season, no matter how you define it. Do you think that the pastor is always in the mood to preach? No. No, he's not. Uh, Pastor's never in the mood to preach on a passage that might make him look bad. You know, because like, for instance, when I preach, my wife and my kid are in the room listening to me, right? How eager am I to get up here and be like, yeah, this is the word of God, everyone. You're all held accountable to it. We better repent. Because now they're watching me. Right? If I, it, it, like, do I want to come up here and give a sermon about how to be a good parent? That puts me under, under a spotlight that my son could be like, oh, really, dad? Even, uh, I think it's going to be December 11th, I'm going to give a sermon on how to be the right husband. Pastor's not always in the mood to preach. You, you know, I'm, I'm not always in the mood to preach on, on certain entire series, just so you know. Like, it was not my idea to preach through the book of Job. That's Patrick's. <laughs> it was not my idea to preach through the book of Proverbs. That's Patrick's. <laughs> it's not my idea to preach through some of those series. And I'm like, that, that's hard. And like, you know, he says, well, it, it, you know, like the, the preacher needs to grow too. He has to, be, he has to be stretched. He has to be like outside of his comfort zone. I'm like, who are you? <laughs> Any holiday message, like on December 25th this year is a Sunday, I, I'm giving a Christmas message. Who wanted me to give a Christmas message? Not this guy, right? Someone else said, you should give a Christmas message. And I said, okay, I'll do it. But I, like, I wasn't like, I have an idea, guys. Since Christmas is on a Sunday, I, I wasn't like, I'll give a Christmas message. I was just going to continue on, like, you know, just part eight in our sermon series on the charismatic movement or something, you know, like something like that. It, would, it wouldn't have mattered, but a lot of people, uh, a lot of people wonder, like, is, is this the, the preacher? Like, he comes up here because this is what he wants to talk about. That's not always the case, and he's not always in the mood for it. I know a lot of people's regard for me is flexible based on whether or not they like what I say, but I gotta preach the word in season and out of season. Preacher, you have to preach the word in season and out of season. Look, if, if the season that we're talking about is like, oh, this seems like it's promising and people will like what they hear. If you think that's what the season is, oh, it's in season, everybody wants to hear this, you know? If, if that's what it is, uh, then in our society, it is not the season to preach on gender and sexuality and abortion, et cetera. 
Should we avoid it? Certainly not. If, if it means, you know, something's in season when interest is peaked, people are curious about it. Well, then when will you ever preach on certain Old Testament books? Right? And people are like, oh, I would like to hear a sermon series on Leviticus. Really? When's the last time you read it? Like, how interested are you in it really? You know, like, what book are you doing your, your devotionals through right now? What, what book are you, you doing your quiet time through? I'm reading Ephesians. Of course, Ephesians. Everybody does Ephesians, right? That's like the, the, the New Testament, Pauline epistles. Everybody does those. Romans, Colossians, Ephesians. And then, oh, I did all three of those. I guess I'll do Romans again. <laughs> Try it. Leviticus. Good luck, right? Now, if you're the preacher, you're like, oh, I got to get up here and be interesting for 70 minutes, right? If you're supposed to be ready at all times, it certainly means you have to be constantly in the Word, learning from the Word, drawing conviction from the Word. You can't just be ready if you haven't been reading it. You can't be ready if you don't care about what you're learning and stuff. You have to be taking this in at all times. You don't preach just because someone asked you to. Preach because there's conviction from the Word that God's people should hear. Now, this is what's kind of cool about the upcoming three weeks. We've got these guest preachers coming up. Each one is going to come up, and they picked their own passage. We didn't assign them a passage. They picked their own passage. And, like, I was talking with, like, one of them, and he very much knows that when he comes up here to preach it, like, he is guilty and needs to repent. I think that is such a cool thing to know. That your preacher doesn't think, oh, because I'm like awesome at this, I'm going to come up here and like just nail everybody, you know, just machine gun the whole thing down. Like, you all need to repent, but I'm awesome. Like, he has the right attitude. He's like, yep, I'm the chief of sinners in this room right now when I'm preaching this passage. I think that's the right posture to have. Be faithful in season and out of season. It's not just be faithful when you don't look bad. Be faithful when it's an easy text. Be faithful when everyone's interested. Be faithful when, uh, when it doesn't embarrass you. No, you have to be faithful at all times. Fourth, preacher, have the courage to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Have the courage to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. I'm just quoting straight from verse two there, right? I mean, this is all just quoting from, the, from those five verses of, of 2 Timothy chapter four. But, Reprove, rebuke, exhort. This gives you a pretty good clue as to the tone of sermons. Doesn't it? They aren't to, you know, tell everyone how good they are, how wonderful they are. Don't worry about a thing. Peace and safety. Everything's good. This, of course, brings me to my favorite quote. I, 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 can, I don't think I can ever preach. No, I can't talk about preaching without bringing up this quote because this screwed my brain before I became a pastor. I heard this quote and it like, it, it drilled in, into my soul. It's from Martin Luther. I'll put it up on the screen. He says, if I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the word of God, except precisely that point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, then I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing him. 
where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefront besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. You preach where the struggle is. You confront false doctrine. You reprove, you rebuke, and you exhort. You target sin. Whose sin? First, yours. Preacher, first, you target your sin. Because you and your congregation should be certain that you don't consider yourself better than everyone else. And that you need a Savior just as much as they do. And you are equally saved by grace, not by worth. Fifth, preacher, do not give in to the pressure of society. Do not give in to the pressure of society. You know, because Paul's saying, like, they're going to have itching ears. They're going to get all these teachers together that just, like, speak to their own personal passions. And then they wander off into myths, superstition, religious mumbo-jumbo, stuff that you can't prove in the Bible. It's just feelings, and I'm sure God's telling me this. I saw something, and there must be a sign. These days, people don't want sound teaching. They want teachers to suit their passions and make them feel good. They turn away from the truth of the word. They get into myths about spiritual stories and dreams and prophecies and signs, and it's all phony. You're trying to feed God's people a healthy diet, but they keep going to junk food and saying, this is better because it tastes so much better. And they won't admit that it's killing them. People say they like your sermon, but they aren't confessing and repenting. It's very likely you've compromised, that you didn't reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Either that or they're just listening and they're not repenting. They're, you know, they're saying they like it. But if they weren't moved to repentance, if they, they weren't moved to confess and say, this is where the word of God brings correction to me. It's like I've looked in the mirror and I know what I need to fix and I'm not going to walk away and just forget about it. I will fix this. I will, I'm going to deal with this. If they, don't, if they don't confess and repent after your sermon, you, you probably compromised. You didn't evangelize them with the sermon. You entertained them with the speech. You probably gave some clever or emotional anecdotes, some funny jokes, some pop psychology, Motivational idioms, maybe you threw in a couple life hacks, some reassurance it'll all be okay, gave them some positive thinking, some self-esteem boosts, three secrets to holiness, four steps to a better marriage or dating, then you put in a bunch of book quotes, even Christian authors, you know, you threw in Charles Spurgeon, C.S. Lewis, you sound really smart. And it has tickled their itching ears, but the Bible doesn't tickle the ears. It boxes them. It wars against our sinful passions. It presents us with hard truth, and it rescues us 
from wandering into myths. So preacher, do not give in to the pressure of society. Don't say what people would love for you to say. Speak the truth. Sixth, preacher, be sober-minded. As it says in verse 5, be sober-minded. That, that means you always have to have clear, reliable, wise, godly, discerning judgment. Be sober-minded. That means you're not drunk. You're not joyless. You're not impulsive. You're not hot-tempered. You're not cynical. You're not biased. You're not unrealistically optimistic. You're not unreasonably pessimistic. You're steady. You're attentive. You're careful. You're thorough. You're self-controlled. You're informed fully. And you're gracious. Your stability and your strength will make it evident that Jesus is your rock and your foundation. And nothing in this life shakes you. Seventh, preacher, endure hardship. Endure hardship. Do you think preaching will make you popular? I mean, if you, if you preach properly, mature Christians might like you. Everyone else won't. Or at least they'll struggle with it. But more jarring is the realization that if you're a mouthpiece for God's word, you're a magnet for Satan's attacks. His war. Who do you think the devil would choose to take down if he had to make a choice? Would he... Take down the nominal Christian, the Sunday visitor, who makes no actual ripple in the congregation, doesn't serve, is not committed, just kind of pops in and out, you know, arrives a little bit late, takes off right after service is done. Do you think he would choose to take out that guy or to take out the preacher? So that when he takes out the preacher, the whole congregation goes, oh, what? And then a, whole, a big portion of the congregation says, was anything I was taught true? Who do you think the devil would take out? Satan is going to be a danger to you. It's like what Jesus said to Peter. He says, like, Satan is going to want to sift you like wheat. Think of what God will let you endure. Right? So you've got, you've got an issue with Satan. He wants to come after you. Because he wants to take you down and, he, and that'll cause a domino effect. But think of what God also wants to do to you. He wants to make you an example to the flock. An example of how to endure suffering. How to be patient amidst anxiety and affliction. How to be wise with your money, especially when you have very little of it. God wants you to be an example to the flock, which means he wants you to be tested and beat down in front of everyone so that 
how you walk through that storm will be instructive for everyone else. God will let you walk through the valley of the shadow of death so that the church will learn what it means to fear no evil. So that the church will learn what it means to take refuge under the rod and the staff of the Lord who is your shepherd. And to say, I will not want. God will give you every trial to bring you to maturity and wisdom because that's what it takes. James 1 tells us it takes trials to bring you to maturity and wisdom. Number eight, preacher, do the work of an evangelist. Do the work of an evangelist. Your job is not to impress everyone with your knowledge or to flex your theology. That's not the job. If you, if you ended up doing that, you haven't done the task required of you. Your job is to bring people to repentance and faith, to lead them to that point. Then they got to choose, but you bring them to that point. That's where you're aiming them. Not just like now they know how to get into a theological debate with someone and make them feel stupid. That's not the point. It's to bring them to a point of repentance and faith. And teaching, and teaching well, and teaching with, uh, with scholarly caliber of information, fine. Teaching is part of your toolkit, but by itself, all that does is inform and educate. That's not enough. Preaching is different from teaching. Preaching takes teaching and then calls people to live differently for the Lord. It's not just transferring information and that, wow, I, now I understand. It's not that. It's to bring them to a better understanding so that they present themselves in view of God's mercy as living sacrifices. When your sermon is over, people shouldn't just say, I know more. They should say, praise God, all glory be to Christ. May the Spirit help me live this out. If you take the word evangelist, euangelistes, it, it just means like the, the guy who preaches good news, you know, that's euangelion, the gospel. You're a gospeler. You are a good newser. That means that your sermon should be good news. Good news starts with the hard truth, where we're in sin. But it always invites us to something better. It always reminds us that we're called to repent because God has something much better for his people. And it's not found in this life. So it's not just like if you become a Christian, you'll be rich. It's not that. It's that if you just endure and if you actually live by what God says, your future is secure with him forever. But it's good news. People should not walk away from your sermon feeling 
bad about themselves and then not know what to do. They should walk away convicted of their sin or their error, but invited to repent without punishment, without judgment. So that when they repent, it wouldn't be like we go, oh, finally. But we would do what heaven does. The angels in heaven rejoice. They celebrate over every sinner that repents. Finally, ninth, preacher, fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your ministry. Now, the word fulfill means complete, like carry it out to the end, which means you don't pick some of the things we've just talked about. You do all of it. You don't do some of the work. You do all of it. Fulfill your ministry. You don't just do the easy parts or the parts that you're already good at. You do all of it. Ministry, though, is really the word service, isn't it? Complete your service. Service to whom? Well, it's your service to Christ. That's kind of the whole thing that the Apostle Paul will be talking about throughout both these letters. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ, a servant of Christ. Complete your service to Christ. Because you, you really do have to figure out who this sermon is for who it'll glorify, who it'll make people think of. They ought to walk away talking about Jesus, not about you. If at all you have expected a preacher to compromise in any of these areas, you should find a new preacher. If you think the preachers at the church you're at don't do what God expects of the preachers to do, you should go to a different church. That's one of the non-negotiables of, of finding a good church. You know, sound doctrine, godly leadership, and then true fellowship, opportunities to serve, and a place where you can invite your friends to evangelize. Don't, don't ever negotiate on the godly leadership thing. If, you're, if your preacher compromises on any of these areas, go somewhere else. If you feel like there, there's compromise here at this church, go somewhere else. Let us know so that we could at least have the chance to think about it and then repent. But settle for nothing less than a biblical preacher. But then you have this conundrum, right? Because the first hundred sermons of a preacher are garbage. Absolute garbage. And that's kind of true. I mean, that's more of like a proverb. It's not like a hard rule. You know, it's not like I'm not going to listen for the first two years of his preaching. It's, don't do that, right? It's not that. It's just a kind of a, it's just this axiom that we use. You know, the first hundred sermons of a preacher are, are garbage. We just say that because that's when you're learning so much. You're soaking so much in. So uh, as a congregation, you, ha- you kind of have this decision to make. Do you go like, I'm going to listen to this and scrutinize it and and uh, lift up the hood and see what's going on and show where all the infection is. You could do that. You really can. It's easy. You and I could talk about it after, you know, after the following three Sundays. We can. 
That's not our job, though, is it? Because when we say that the first three sermons are going to be garbage, it's because a lot of it is execution. You know, you get, you get nervous up here. You don't know how to use your voice. You don't know how to engage with your congregation, all that stuff. No one starts off a master at preaching, and very, very few people even end up being a master at preaching. Most people are okay and not perfect. So what do we do as a congregation? What we do is we just, we do what, what our preacher would do with us. Just be patient and gracious. What you want to look for is not how good he is at it. You want to see if he cares about the right things. Does he remember his calling that he's standing before the Lord? Does he preach the word, not his own opinion? Is he faithful in season and out of season, not just when he's in the mood? Does he have the courage to reprove, rebuke, and exhort? Does he withstand against the pressures of society? Is he sober-minded? Does he endure hardship? Does he bring good news? And does he do this in service into the glory of Jesus Christ. If he does, he could come up here and give a trash sermon because he's all clunky at it, he stumbles over his words, loses his place, gets things backwards, says things out of order, and at the end of it we just go, amen, praise God. Maybe the sermon wasn't good, but maybe it was healthy. And that's what we need. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving clear expectations for every leader in ministry. Thank you for the instructions you gave to Timothy that we can learn from. Thank you that we have a very clear set of standards to which we hold our preachers. We don't look for whether or not they're funny enough or educated enough, impressive enough, gifted enough. We look at whether or not they stand before you, speak accurately, humbly, passionately, courageously, faithfully, 
consistently. So many of these qualities, Lord, require that a preacher not just perform in the moment that he stands in front of the room. It means that he must be a faithful man of God. It's not a thing he does on a Sunday morning. It's who he is. We pray for every preacher that would come out of this church and for all the preachers that we know. And yeah, even the preachers that we don't know. But we pray that your people would be equipped by by preachers that stand at the pulpit with integrity and faith who are biblical in who they are and in what they say. Bless the pulpit of each of your churches and bless this one. And then may we as a congregation be gracious and patient for every new preacher because no one's a master right when they start. We want to embrace them and encourage them and spur them along so that as the time goes on, they'll get past 100 sermons someday. Then it'll be really cool. Bless your church, Lord. Preach the gospel through everyone who stands up here. And do it all for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.